Now let's open up our Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and as you are able, stand together one more time in honor of the word of the Lord. Not something we do out of empty ritual, something we do to remind ourselves, even physically remind ourselves, that it is it's the authority of God's word that, that we sit under, that we stand under. That it is God who speaks authoritatively. And the words that, 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 we, that we preach here, the words that we sing here, the words that we pray here only, only have weight because God's word is eternal and unchanging and authoritative. And so hear now the word of the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, thank you for the great privilege to study the book of James as you have given to us in your kindness, that we might know you more fully, that we might know what pleases you, that we might be transformed by your spirit, working through your word into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be grown up, strengthened and established in the faith. I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish by your spirit through your word, your good work among us this morning. I pray for myself that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can be seated. So we we are beginning this morning our verse-by-verse study of the the letter of James. This is an incredibly popular book among Christians. There is good reason for its popularity. We could have a giant list of the reasons. One of the major reasons this book is so popular is that it just speaks to us right where we're living with such practicality. And it's not that the other books of Scripture don't speak to us right where we're living. Every single one of them does. But James does so in such a, in such a manner that it's easy for us to see it. He speaks to us directly where, our, where we are living, and he does so with supernatural insight and Power. James is uniquely focused on how we should live as the people of God. In that pursuit, he leaves no stone unturned. He is determined to be intrusive in our lives. You know, when you, you invite someone over for dinner, and you're going to make sure the kitchen looks good, and you're going to make sure the living room looks good. Really, really any room you know they're going to go in, you make sure it looks good. You vacuum, you dust, maybe. Whatever it is that you do, your ritual is when people are coming. Whatever they're going to see, we make sure it looks our best. And then we're just banking on the assumption that they're not going to be rude and explore. Like There are rooms we don't want them to see because all the things we moved out of the rooms we did want them to see are now in those rooms. We haven't cleaned those rooms. But James is not content to stay in the living room in the kitchen. He's going to look in our closets He's going to open the bedroom doors and look there. He's going to rifle through all the drawers. He's going to get into our financial records. He's going to listen in on our prayer lives and our prayer lists. He is absolutely going to intrude into our private lives. The Holy Spirit, through the book of James, means to examine us. Like a good and thorough doctor gives a physical examination. I just had something like that this week. And they wanted to schedule more appointments. I got a call from a lady. We'd like to schedule a colonoscopy. And I yelled at this woman. I said, this is just rude. What kind of person are you? 
Is this how you want to spend your morning? You call people? You schedule something like this? I don't want that. It's invasive. I have no interest in that. Thankfully, she knew I was kidding. I did yell at her, though. It was a delight. I think it made her day. I think it did. (laughs) Well, in this letter, letter, James is going to take us into the examination room. He's going to check our hearts. He's going to check our tongues. He's going to check our motives and our thoughts. He's testing all of it. He's examining all of it. And just like when we go to the doctor and we leave with instructions, instructions about what we shouldn't eat anymore or what what it is we need to start doing, we leave with that little white piece of paper with unintelligible scribbling on it that we have to have decoded for us at the pharmacy. They can read it somehow. We leave with that prescription. There's a medicine we've got to take. There's something we've got to apply. There's something we've got to do. That's the book of James. In this short letter, there are 54 imperatives in the Greek language. That is 54 commands, 54 prescriptions from Dr. James. Many of them are in a mood that deserves an exclamation point. James is an incredibly practical book. Whether you're a brand new believer or whether you are a mature Christian, you can't read the book of James without finding something that's going to provoke you. His writing is so vivid, it's so punchy, it's so quotable, it's so to the point, it's so simple that even a child can understand it. They can can get what James is saying. And throughout this letter, James exhorts us and he encourages us. And it all happens in sort of a rapid fire succession. In one paragraph, we're being comforted by him. In the next, we're being confronted by him and convicted by him. Contrary to the the unfortunate claim that many make about the book of James, this is not just a bunch of random sayings that James has compiled together and and thrown onto a page and it wouldn't matter what order he said things or how he did it. There's no structure. That's not true. There's a theme. There's a progression. James is exhorting us to become mature in Christ, to live like Christians and to think like Christians. And he does it. By commanding us to follow that wisdom which is from above and not the so-called wisdom that is from below. There's there's so much we could say about this book. This morning I want to introduce this letter by focusing on the man who wrote it primarily. And the man who wrote it, and this is just a word or two about those who received it originally. So we're just looking at the first verse of this wonderful book. For the most part, the first half of the first verse, the whole book's not going to go this way, but this morning is. Let's look at that verse again. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. This, this letter opens in the common way that a letter opened in the first century. The, the introduction given here is typical to a letter of that time. It gives us the author. It gives us the recipients. It gives a greeting. And the author of this letter, under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a man named James. And other than describing himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James doesn't tell us anything else about himself in this letter. That's what you get. My name is James. A servant of the Lord of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason for that. It's because this is a man who needs no introduction. 
He was just simply James. And everybody knew who James was. Nothing more about him needed to be said, but perhaps we as modern readers need a little more than just the name James, and then we have this wealth of information about him. Partly because James was a very common name in the New Testament. It was like the the 11th most, most popular boy's name of that time. There's Jameses everywhere running around. There's three different James in the New Testament. They're all followers of Jesus. There's James, the son of Zebedee. He's, he's the brother of John. They were called the sons of thunder. He's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Well, according to the book of Acts, James was killed by Herod before this letter was even written. So we can safely rule him out as the author of this book. There's another James, James, the son of Alphaeus. It's also called James the Younger or James the Less or James the Lesser. He's one of the 12 also, but we don't know anything else about him at all. Just his name. That's all we get. Not, not from the pages of scripture, at least. There's some Christian tradition that tries to fill in some of the pieces, but scripture doesn't tell us anything else about him. Neither, neither one of those James is who wrote this letter. The James who wrote this letter is not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but he's a man who actually became more influential in the early church than those men were. He's someone who everyone would recognize. They would know him just by his name. That that name, which was so common, that name which was so prevalent, that name of which there were so many James floating around, this James was so well known that all he had to say was, James, and everybody said, oh, we know who it is. Story begins, his story, in Scripture in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples came to his hometown in Nazareth. The people who lived there in Nazareth, they knew Jesus. He had, li- he had lived there. He had grown up there. He had grown up and lived among these people of Nazareth. And they knew who he was. And yet when, when he began doing miracles, when he began teaching in their synagogue, they were amazed by this Jesus who they had known their whole lives. They were amazed by his power. They were amazed by the authority of his teaching. And in Mark chapter 6 verse 3 they said, Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him, it says. Well, by the time Jesus is, is 30, by the time of his public ministry, Jesus has four brothers and two or more sisters. Jesus being, of course, the oldest of the siblings. But Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. And one of those brothers we see here is, is named James. Technically, we would say he's a half-brother of Jesus. They only, they only shared that biological connection through Mary as Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it's this brother, it's this James who wrote this letter that we're going to be studying in the coming months together. He's not the only brother of Jesus to write a book of the New Testament. Another brother, Jude, wrote the book that bears his name. And Jude's letter opens very similar to James. Jude opens like this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. It's interesting how similar that is. He he says he's a servant, just like James did, but he adds another piece of information. He's a brother of James. Why does he do that? 
Why does he name that himself as a brother of James? Well, we'll see. But, but one of the things to note is two of Jesus's brothers rose to such prominence in the early church that they actually wrote books of the New Testament. That Their writings, their letters became part of the New Testament canon for the church of Christ. And that's interesting because when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the picture it paints of Jesus' siblings would never lead us to the conclusion that one day we'll be writing, reading New Testament books by them. That one day they'll be identifying themselves as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would never have expected that to happen. In the Gospels, Jesus' brothers are not supporters of him. It's clear that they love him, but they're not believers. And even though they love their brother... They don't believe what he's claiming about himself. For example, one story recorded in the Gospel of Mark illustrates this tension between Jesus and his brothers. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has just returned home to his home base in Capernaum. He, he, is, he has come through a very busy season of ministry. He has rose to great prominence. He returns to Capernaum with his disciples. And the crowds have followed him there. And they're absolutely swarming him there. Until it says in verse 20, Jesus couldn't even eat. The crowds were, were so large and pressing in on him so hard, he couldn't even eat. Well, hearing that alarmed Jesus' family. They see him return home from this ministry, throngs of people all over him. And it says in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went about to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Most of us know stories of, of various celebrities. They rise to fame, especially at a very young age, and then they just go crazy. They just lose their minds. They become an object. They've been put on this pedestal, and then they become an object of mockery for the world to mock them, the world that did this to them. But Jesus' family is looking at Jesus and saying, that's exactly what's happening. His, his, his celebrity has driven him out of his mind. And so they decide there's only one thing we can do. We can go by force. We can take Jesus, forcibly remove him from these crowds that he seems to love. And we can take him away from that. We'll take him somewhere else away from the crowds. And that they arrive and the crowds are so thick they can't even get to him. And we read this in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called. The crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. Verse 33, he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So with, with these words, Jesus is, is making a statement about his, his siblings, also his mother. About his whole family's perception of him, and that is this. Their desire to come seize him and take him away by force. It's actually against the will of God. They're at odds with what Jesus and his heavenly father are doing. But why is that? Why his family who loves him dearly, why are they in opposition? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but John's gospel tells us. It's made clear in an incident in John chapter 7. Six months before Jesus was to be crucified, he was with his brothers and they pressed him to go to Jerusalem. The, the Jewish fall feast was going on, the Feast of Booths. They said, we've got to get Jesus to Jerusalem. John tells us this in John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. 
So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, Jesus, you miracle worker, go to Jerusalem where there are thousands upon thousands of people gathered and go do your miracles in front of them. No miracle worker should be doing this in secret. That sounds pretty good. Then John tells us why they said that to him, why they wanted him to go to Jerusalem. In the very next verse, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers, that includes James, that includes Jude, wanted Jesus to take his miracle-working show to Jerusalem because that city would be so overcrowded with people for the feast and he could show off himself to the world. They, they, they were not urging, John makes it clear, Jesus to do this because they believed in him. They were doing it, John says, because they did not believe in him. They saw him as a miracle worker. Nobody could deny that. He was clearly doing miraculous things, but they did not see him as the son of God. Now, now, now these men knew Jesus better than Virtually anyone else in the world. They were his brothers. They'd grown up in the same household with him. They had witnessed firsthand his character. Can you imagine the pressure of being Jesus' brother? Being Jesus' siblings? He never lied. He never disobeyed. He never had a bad attitude towards his parents. He was quite literally perfect. Well, they'd seen it. They'd heard time and time again, doubtless, the story of his miraculous birth and all the amazing events that surrounded that. As adults, they'd seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. He taught with authority, unlike anyone else. They still didn't believe in him. He's a miracle worker, but not the son of God. And then something changed. The picture of Jesus' siblings, his brothers in the Gospels is that of unbelief. The picture we get of Jesus' brothers from Acts onward is very different. Before Jesus died, they didn't believe in him. But sometime after he died, they came to believe in him. Well, what happened? As we're concerned with James, the author of this letter, what is it that made James come to believe in him? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is defending the resurrection of Christ by telling us of those eyewitnesses to the resurrection And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7 says this. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. So when Jesus arose, Jesus revealed himself to certain people, including, he says here, again, just the name, James. Now, now, now since Paul has already mentioned the 12 disciples specifically in verse 5, and then in verse 7, he says he appeared to James, then to the apostles, it's clear who this James is. This James is the brother of Jesus. And so Paul tells us very clearly that Jesus made a special appearance to one brother in particular, to James. 
By, by, by the beginning of Acts, Jesus' brothers are no longer walking in unbelief. They are now faithful followers of Christ. They are in fellowship with the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, immediately after Jesus ascended, the 11 remaining disciples had gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem. And we read this in Acts chapter 1 verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So somewhere between Jesus's death and his ascension, his brothers came to believe in him. Why? Well, it's not hard to figure out. They saw him raised from the dead. That would do it. And it would take something like that, something of that magnitude to make you worship your brother, pray to your brother, honor your brother, sing songs to your brother. It would, it would make, you would need something major. Well, they saw him raised from the dead, just as he said he would be. James didn't just become a believer. He became vitally important. He became a key leader in the early church, perhaps, in fact, the key leader in the early church. So something of a first among equals among the apostles, Peter, John, Paul. Galatians chapter 1, Paul, Paul describes his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. It's three years after his conversion and his call to preach the gospel. And Paul says this in Galatians 1.18. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Again, that's Peter. Remained with him 15 days, but I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So, so when Paul went to Jerusalem, he only saw two leaders that he names, Peter and James. This visit occurred just a few years after the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And yet notice, already James is among the leaders. And Paul's wording here is interesting in verse 19. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's seeming to imply, he's not saying that James is one of the apostles, capital A apostles, but he is saying by this time, James is considered in the same category as those guys. Same category as Peter and the other apostles. Many, excuse me, many years later, maybe, maybe 12 to 14 years later, depending on what commentary you're looking at, Paul's led to go to Jerusalem again. He tells us that in Galatians as well. Galatians 2, I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, Paul, Paul goes again to Jerusalem. He's going to the apostles and he wants their affirmation. He wants to set before him the, them the work he's been doing among the Gentiles and establish with them and through them that the gospel he is preaching is the exact same gospel that they've been preaching. <coughs> so who is it that Paul seeks out in Jerusalem to confirm this? Who is that he seeks out to confirm his gospel preaching? He tells us, beginning in verse 6, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked with me through mine, to the Gentiles. So he says, they added nothing to me. In other words, 
When I told them the gospel that I preached, they didn't have any, well, you really should be saying this. Or you really shouldn't be saying this. It was, it was the exact same ministry. And he says that the same God who called Peter to the Jews called me to the Gentiles. And we're preaching the same gospel message of that same God and through the power of that same God. Verse 9 says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So in other words, James and Peter and John blessed Paul's work to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. That's Paul's point here. These three men, Paul calls pillars of the church. In other words, the main leaders of the church. And notice who he names first. James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John. James is listed first as the first pillar. We shouldn't overlook that fact. Often in scripture that the order of names is significant. It, it means something. For, for example, every list of the 12 disciples in the gospels, Peter's always named first. Why is Peter always named first? It's because he's something of the de facto leader of the disciples. Judas is always named last. Why is Judas always named last? Because he's a false disciple. And so we don't, we don't want to get too dogmatic about that kind of stuff. But it's reasonable to think that the order of names means something. That it, that it matters. It could imply that James is something of a first among equals. There are, there are a number of other things we don't have time to get into where we see this same pattern play out. James, then Peter, then John. Even one of the two oldest oldest um, copies of the Bible that we have, the books themselves are ordered that way. That, that the book of James is pushed all the way to the front just after Acts. It's the Gospels, Acts, James. Uh, and then Peter. And, and, then, and then John's, uh, John's epistle. Uh, and so we, we see from that, there seems to be this pattern going on. Regardless of that, Two times now, Paul has listed him as one of the major leaders, if not the leader, at least a major leader in the church in Jerusalem, which is the gravitational center of the Christian world at that time. Even Peter seems to distinguish James among the other leaders. In Acts chapter 12, we read about King Herod who reigned over Jerusalem. He began persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, Luke says that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with his sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So in verse 2, James, that's not James, the, the brother of Jesus, who's the author of this letter, but James, the brother of John, one of the 12, was killed. He became the first of the apostles to be martyred. At that same time, Peter was, in that same wave of persecution, Peter was imprisoned. But miraculously, an angel, as we read on, an angel freed, rescued Peter from the prison, led him to a house where Christians were gathered. And in verse 17 of Acts chapter 12, Peter says this. Peter told them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed, went to another place. Well, that's obviously not the James who's already dead in verse 2. 
This is James, the brother of Jesus, who would become one of the pillars of the early church. And so when Peter has been miraculously rescued and he wants the whole church to know, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to know, I've been set free, I have been rescued, I am safe, I'm not dead, I'm not in prison, the Lord has set me free, who does he want first notified? James, the leader of the church. Just a few chapters over, James' James's leadership is, is clearly evident. In chapter 15, when a controversy arises, threatening to split the church over, what do we do with all these Gentiles who be, are becoming Christian? Do we need to have them circumcised so that they can be Christians, so they can be saved? In verse 6, it says, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Is this controversy, it's really the first church council comes together in Jerusalem to settle this matter. What are we going to do? We have to come up with something here. There's much debate. After a while, Peter spoke up in the midst of that, that council. And he made the case for why Gentiles are saved by grace and not through works. After Peter spoke up, Paul and Barnabas spoke up. And they spoke about how God had done miracles through them among the Gentiles, confirming his call of the Gentiles to salvation. But the matter was still not resolved. It wasn't resolved until James spoke up. He spoke last, verse 13. After they finished speaking, that's Peter, that's Paul and Barnabas. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And he reasoned then from the Old Testament scriptures that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And in verse 19, he came to his conclusion. He said, therefore, my judgment, note those words. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble them by adding to the gospel. We shouldn't trouble by adding circumcision as a requirement for salvation. That word judgment's a strong word. It's a judicial word. It means verdicts. Literally, what James is saying here is everybody's been making their case. Even Peter, even Peter speaks out. Even Paul and Barnabas speaks out. And then James says, let me tell you what my decision is. Let me tell you my verdict. Let me tell you my judgment on this. And when he spoke it, the debate was over. When James finished speaking, the matter was settled. So, so whatever level of leadership James had in the early church, when he spoke, people listened. He, he was very influential, even among the apostles, even among all the leaders of the church. And in this case, at least the Jerusalem council, when James spoke, the matter was decided. They, did exact, they then did exactly what James told them they should do. James said, here's my judgment. This is what we need to do. And that's exactly what they did. Just one more passage to, to demonstrate the leadership James had in the early church, Acts 21. In this chapter, Paul, for a final time, comes to Jerusalem. And all the believers there gladly welcome him. But notice who it is that Paul seeks to meet with the day after his arrival. Acts 21, verse 18. The following day when Paul went in with us to James... And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul comes to provide a ministry update. That, that's, that, that's what he's doing. He's coming to say, here is the work that I have been doing among the Gentiles. Once again, as he does that, the leader, the, the only leader 
mentioned by name that Paul met with was James. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he always sought out James. Why is that? It was because over time, James had become the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the center of the Christian world. And until James's martyrdom, perhaps no one was more influential among Christians than he was. There are some, some extra biblical histories that, that speak to us of James. One is the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus was born around 37 AD, lived to about 100 AD. And he gave to us history from a Jewish perspective. He was not a believer in Christ. He was a Jew. In his works, he mentions Jesus. He mentions Pontius Pilate. He mentions Herod. He mentions John the Baptist. But the only Christian he ever mentions by name in all of his recovered works, it's not Peter. It's not John, it's not Paul, it's James. Josephus records for us how James was martyred. As if that was such a significant event that even Jewish history needed to mark the death of this Christian man. He says James was stoned to death, probably in the spring of 62 AD. This was so significant that even a Jewish historian writing sometime later thought that James was such an important figure that his death needed to be recorded. All of this is to say, James, the brother of Jesus, needed no introduction. So so as James opens his letter in James chapter 1, verse 1, he simply introduces himself as James. Not James, the brother of Jesus. Not James the leader of the church in Jerusalem, not James the Just, which was a name he had come to be known by, Eusebius, a a fourth century historian, known as the father of, of church history. He said of James, he used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling so often that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and praying. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the Just. That was the name people started to call him, James the Just, a title of honor. But that is not how he introduced himself. Simply, humbly, he introduced himself as James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What James wanted you to know about himself was not all of his credentials, It was not his family line. It was not his reputation. What he wanted you to know is who it is that he served. James considered himself only a servant. James, this great man, this towering figure. He considered himself a servant and not the servant, a servant, a servant. Literally, the word is slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how James thought of himself. That's how James wanted to be known. A slave is someone who has no advantages, no privileges, no rights over and against his master, but only lives to serve his master. They they owe their master exclusive, unreserved obedience. And here is James. And he says, that's who I am, a willing slave. Bound to my master by affection. Bound to my master by worship. 
As a Jew, we would expect him to call himself a slave of God, a servant of God, bound to God. But James says, and this is what's mind-blowing, he's a slave of his brother. His brother who he once didn't believe in. His brother who he loved but thought was crazy. His brother who was all along the Lord of glory. Who was all along the Savior. Who was all along the promised Messiah. James is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that language we have said before, we saw it in, the, in Paul's epistle to the Romans. To use those three names of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was the Lord's brother, though he was the leader of the church, he thought of himself no higher than a slave. That's what he wanted us to know about him. What, what a model of humility. What an incredible model of humility. Perhaps the greatest leader in the church of his day. A day, by the way, where the apostles were the other leaders of the church. This is a huge deal to have the apostles, capital A, be looking to you. And all he wants you to know about him is this. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, friends, is a person we can learn wisdom from. He's got something to teach us. And in this letter, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to teach us what true wisdom is. We're only half a verse in. And I love our brother James. I told Andrea this last night. I can't wait. I cannot wait to start this book. I love this guy. It's incredible. I cannot wait to learn from him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But with that introduction out of the way, we're ready to get into the sermon. I'm just kidding. Kidding. We do need to finish the rest of verse one. (laughs) He says this. James. Slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. True to his Jewish roots, James addresses his recipients like Jews. That phrase, to the 12 tribes. It's an obvious reference to the Jews. That that word in the dispersion is a term used in those days to reference the Jews who've been spread about. They're not living in the land of Israel. They've been scattered, dispersed throughout the Gentile world. But but if we were to read the whole letter today, and obviously we don't have time to do that, we, we would see that James addresses his audience as brothers 19 times in this letter. In the New Testament, that term brothers is a term of endearment among Christians. So James addresses this to the 12 tribes of the dispersion But he's not writing broadly to all Jews everywhere. He's writing to Christians. Specifically Jewish Christians. Jews who'd come to saving faith in Christ. Who he considers to be his true family. Really though, he's writing to all believers. He's writing to all of us. When we read these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Dr. James is speaking to us. He's examining us. Today we're just introducing ourselves to this letter and to the incredible man 
who modeled for us humility, the incredible man who was filled with godly wisdom that we need to hear. This book, as we study it, we are going to learn from the best of men. This is is one of the best men. He's an absolute hero of the faith. He is an absolute model of faithfulness. And by God's grace, we're going to benefit from the godly wisdom that our dear brother James imparts to us by God's Holy Spirit. He does mean to take us into the examination room. That doesn't always feel good. It's not always comfortable. It can be embarrassing. But God means to do us good. God means to do us good through this infallible inspired text. And so we need to trust him in that. We need to to trust him to examine us rightly by his Holy Spirit. To prescribe for us exactly what we need. To trust that as he has promised, he's going to transform us in the process. We need to to come to him and, and, and say, God, as you have determined through the book of James over these next weeks and months to, to open those closed doors in my house. To go through my closets and my drawers and my finances and my prayer requests and my motivations to examine my speech and my heart. Lord, there's not one door locked to you. There's not one room that's marked off limits. Search me. Know me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. See if there be wickedness in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. God will will do this through his word. He means to do this for us through his word because he loves us. I am eager to study this book with you over the coming months. I trust that it will strengthen our faith. That it will encourage us to walk more humbly and wisely before our God as slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, how kind you are to give to us your word that we could know you. How kind you are to give to us yourself in your word that we could hear your voice. Lord, to give to us the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died in our place, who rose triumphant from the grave, who is seated even now in power and in glory, who sent his spirit to dwell in us, that same spirit that that raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit that inspired these words lives now in us. Lord, we can't comprehend how glorious that is. We can't comprehend your greatness and your kindness to us, but we pray, Lord, That as we study your word in these weeks and these months to come, we pray, Lord, that you would do a transforming work in us. Lord, diagnose those areas of our heart that we have not been able to see. Lord, examine us and reveal to us where, where sin has been lurking, where pride has been lurking, where rebellion even has been lurking. Lord, do so in your kindness and by your spirit. Grant to us the gift of repentance. Lord, that we would seek to put sin to death and to live righteously before you in a way that pleases you. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not dependent on our ability to to obey. It's not dependent on our ability to, to get everything right. We are saved by 
your grace alone, through faith in Christ's perfect work alone, in his spotless life, in his substitutionary death, in his glorious resurrection, and we are trusting in Christ. But Lord, we heed the words of our brother James, that a faith without works is dead. We know that true saving faith will produce good fruit, and we pray, Lord, that you would produce it in us in abundance, both individually and corporately as a church, for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.